Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book In the Arena by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International. And we are on Chapter 7, Part 1. Small Harassments. Up to now, we'd seen the Lord making himself known through wondrous workings. The distrustful unbeliever would call them coincidences, perhaps. But the child of God, watching the exact timing, the quick reply to a sudden prayer, does not hesitate to label them miracles. It is a miracle when you can count on it beforehand, without any knowledge of how it could possibly happen. But there is less spectacular platform whereon God also manifests himself. It is one of everyday struggle with everyday small problems. Nothing breathtaking has happened, yet at the end of the year or after a long period has passed, as one thoughtfully reviews it, suddenly one sees it. Look, we say, wasn't it a miracle that all that was against us? We were enabled to go for steadfastly forward. It is the forward pushing, despite the harassment of small trials that prick, sting, and weary one. And perhaps this is the platform which God uses most often in the average Christian's life. So we want to look at its possibilities. The Coons were now in the canyon, although John must still keep his travel circuits as superintendent of the Chinese churches along the Burma Road. From the military point of view, we were in the danger zone. Civilians were not allowed past Tali City without military pass. Some Japanese were just across the mountains from us, and some of them just across the Seguin River, but several days' journey to the south. Colonel Hesse and his guerrillas had prepared trenches along the east bank of the Selween. Oak Flat Village is on the east bank, but 2,000 feet above the river. Later, the colonel and his men moved over to the village of the Olives, which is on the west bank. Of course, they had spies out all the time, and no one was allowed to cross the river without a military pass. The Japanese were known to be in the area of the Great Pass into Burma, the vicinity of which can be seen from our porch at Oak Flat, so we were never allowed to forget them. Our winter schedule was usually to travel among the villages holding a two-week Bible study wherever we were invited. But this year of 1942, the rainy season, Bible school had to be shortened owing to the paratyphoid which had broken out among the staff. So they decided to hold the third month's study in October, by which time the weather had cleared and the missionaries had recovered. This decision in the Lord's kind providence gave us the opportunity of teaching our beloved RSBC student group. John was with us only from the beginning of the school, as he had to go to Chinaland to escort Dr. May's medical unit, who was coming to Lisulin for a couple of weeks' free medical ministry to the Lisu tribe. Those days, the whole world was learning from England. What a boost to the nation's morale is the spirit of blitz or no blitz. We carry on business as usual. The Christian missionary surely should have equal courage and faith. This was the reason we decided to ignore the danger zone and go quietly on with our usual program. It had a wonderfully stabilizing effect upon the whole countryside, for the Lesu were jittery at the presence of so many armed men and ready to desert their villages for caves and other places of refuge high in the mountains. October dawned beautifully sunny and a fine group of students assembled. But the school had barely started when word came that the soldiers in a strange uniform, 100 strong, had arrived in the stream north of Cowhump Village. This threw everyone into a panic. The Lay Sioux had never seen a Japanese, suspected every strange uniform, and those soldiers were Oriental, they declared. My diary says it was Saturday when this disturbing news reached us, and on Saturdays we had no classes, for our students were sent into surrounding villages to evangelize or to conduct Sunday services. One of the Lay Sioux came in to tell us that, the, that our Oak Flat villagers were packing up for flight. 
Mrs. Yang and her mother had already gone to the hamlet, difficult of access far in the ravine, and others had fled to their fields. Cow's Hump was a long journey's march to the north of us, but Oak Flat was so close to the main road down the canyon that plunders certainly would not pass us by. Of course, we, the white missionaries, held counsel together, and excitement reigned. Most of the Pashan missionaries had returned to their work. My late experience of flight into Sichuan at the mere blowings of windwards, the Lesu for word for rumor, was still potently fresh in my mind. Also, I felt the Lord had given me a drastic lesson, which I said I was not to lay down my duties and flee except at his word. And this was still just rumor. I had immediately gone to the Lord about this latest, and he had given me Isaiah 26:12, Lord, you establish peace for us. It was a miserable position, but the Lord used the pain of that recent experience to hold me steady in an important test. I dared not run when he said to stay. The next day, Sunday, was calm and sunny. It was a custom for Christians in the nearby villages to come to the Oak Flat Chapel for worship. But with this scary rumor abroad, we wondered how many would dare to come. It's easy for Lesu, however, with nothing to carry, to skip up the mountains like wild goats, and if the need arises, disappear even as you look at them. So that Sunday noon saw several hundreds arrive to worship. They found that we were planning for the Bible school to continue as usual. Students who had gone to the villages close at hand for the weekend would be expected to report for school by Sunday evening, and everyone was supposed to be back by 9 o'clock on Monday morning for classes. This word, carried back to the villages scattered over peak and ridge, had a stabilizing effect upon everyone. So it was no surprise later to hear that the students who had gone north towards Cowhump had returned with the news that the strange soldiers were not Japanese. They were Chinese from Hanan province with a slightly different uniform and accent. What they were doing in the canyon was unexplained, but fears were dispelled sufficiently for classes to resume again on Monday morning. For the next two years, we had this periodic temptation to desert Oak Flat and the RSBC student group. Business as usual, impossible. Well, let us stick to it as long as we can and then see what God does for us. Under that spirit, we were to prove him in a quiet but thrilling way on the platform of small harassments. Life proceeded rather smoothly until the next February. The Japanese did not seem to be gaining, and Colonel Hesse crossed the Selween and talked about occupying Fort Penem. But at the Christmas festival, which I had asked for an estimate of how many girls planned to come to our yearly girls' Bible school in February, no one would promise. Taxes were high now, and war rumors unsettling. The Lesu work is indigenous, so of course the students all paid their own way, except for the wives of the evangelist, whose board was paid by the church. But even these wives would only say they hoped they could come. What if they came and then the military situation deteriorated suddenly and they could not get back across the river, they asked. We had no answer. That could easily happen. We could only pray that the Lord would restrain the enemy so that the girls of the church might have this opportunity for Bible study, which came only once a year for them. But as 1943 dawned and all seemed quiet, there came a question. Should we prepare for a girls' school without the promise of even one scholar? Dormitories were badly in need of repair, and they were leaking and out of plumb, and the beds had disappeared. It would cost money to repair them and time to oversee the job. Who would take the responsibility of ordering it? Charles Peterson, at that time a bachelor, was a missionary in charge of the Oak Flat Station in 1943. I was to assist him where I could, and John also, when he was home. Charles and I prayed about it and decided to live during these war days as if life were normal. Business as usual was to be our motto. 
if we did not hold a scheduled school, we felt the Lord would warn us ahead of time. If he did not say stop, was it not common sense to infer that he meant to go ahead? So we decided to have the dormitories repaired, and as Charles would be out of the village holding Bible classes, I had to hire the workmen and oversee the job. There was also another kind of preparation needed. Always we tried to have new hymns and choruses translated for the girls so that they might have an interesting contribution to make in their home villages when they finished their studies. The girl students would be asked to teach the other Christians in their village anything new that was to be learned. It was not unusual for Lesu women to stand up and to teach, so they needed strong encouragement to be induced to even try. A bright new chorus was excellent bait, and the girls soon forgot their self-consciousness when they discovered that their audience was eager to learn what they alone would teach. So both girls in the Christian villages were helped by the subjects taught by the girls' Bible school. But as the day for assembling the girls' Bible school drew near, the weather turned against us. Snow clouds came down over the great peaks, 12,000, 15,000 feet high. The wind blew icy cold, and the lower slopes of the snow turned to rain, wet, penetrating, chill, and damp. These snow spells in February sometimes continued for two weeks. The girls on the west bank of the Salween would have over 20 miles of mountain road to travel, besides crossing a dangerous river. They would not dare attempt it in a snowstorm. Saturday was assembling day, and by night we had over a dozen girls, all from the east bank. Now our most progressive students, mentally and spiritually, were those that lived on the west bank. So you can imagine how we prayed for them to come. Sunday continued stormy, but Monday there was a lull. It did not really clear. The sky was dull and gray all day, but at least there was no downpour. Would the girls attempt to come? We could not know until evening, so we began the school with the girls we had. You can imagine our thrill at sunset when a shout came ringing up the trail. Girls on the west bank are coming. We ran to the door, and there around the edge of the mountain was a line of little dots moving down the trail towards us. Sure enough, we ran out gingerly, for the ground was too wet and slippery to allow speed and on the oak flat trail which connects with the main road up and down the canyon. There they were, their bedding and books and big bags slung over their shoulders or carried on the back with a strap placed over the forehead to distribute the weight. Mary, Lydia, Julia, and Chloe and her brothers and husbands come on behind, carrying their grain supply. Happy smiles and handshakes. We were afraid you wouldn't make it was an answer by the chorus of the girls' exclamation as to the difficulties encountered and their determination to press through. Chatter, chatter, as bare feet pattered over the muddy trails to the church kitchen, where warm fires and a hot supper were waiting. That night, for the first evening session of the school, we had 33 students. What a praise service! How it pays to take one step at a time with God! What if we had not prepared the dormitories? That very night, the storm descended again, and we kept up for a week. God's children need courage as well as faith. Courage to begin preparations for the workings of God, clearing the deck for action, so to speak. For sometimes his door opens only for a very short period, and if one is only fully ready to enter in, it will close, perhaps permanently. There was only that one lull in the bad weather that Monday morning for a week or more. With so many bright-faced girls to teach, Charles, Ava, and I swung into the schoolwork with joy and zest despite bitter cold and sloppy mountain trails. We thought our harassments were conquered, but alas, no. The second or third day of the school, Charles appeared. I think we were changing classes. I coming out and he going in to teach with a gloomy face. Guess what, Isabel? 
Old Fox China Scribe is here with his thief. He took the whole last hour of my preparation time, which I had planned to spend on this lesson I have to teach now. I'm not sure where, what he's after. He's going down there waiting for you now. Do pray for me this hour. I do so want to give my best. And then he disappeared into the classroom. I proceeded downhill with a sinking heart. Fox was the nickname we had given to the local feudal lord because of his sly ways. The thief was a heathen neighbor who lived over the hill from us, who had robbed us one night while we were all at church. He was a notorious robber, but as he shared his spoils with the fox and the fox scribe, he protected him. We had lost about 200 Chinese dollars in cash and some clothing, a green sweater of mine being one article. John, with some companions, had accidentally walked into the Lay house and found Mr. Thief seated at the friend's fire wearing Isabel's green sweater. He had no chance to escape, and the native official with John said, Leave him to me. I'll see he gets impounded. You proceed on your journey. There was nothing else John could do, apparently. Usually it was not our practice to take the lacy to law. Fervently did I wish it had not been done now. I found the scribe and his retinue, dirty, greasy, half-breeds they were, who had studied Chinese and spoke it with a very strong tribal accent that I could hardly understand as it was Chinese which added to my difficulties. I, too, had planned to use the next hour for study preparation. I had added some mothercraft subjects to those usual taught in the girls' Bible school. I needed to look up some Lesu expressions not often used, and here were these four broadly grinning men bowing before me and apparently enjoying themselves. Moreover, it was ten o'clock, the hour such men expect to be served breakfast. I bowed, asked them to be seated, and turned around to call Ava, she was right there. Her class, knitting and baby craft sewing, was in the afternoon, so fortunately she was free. Don't worry, Mama, she whispered. I saw them intended to eat here, and I got a meal almost ready for them in just five minutes. Was there any such jewel of a girl? What would I have done without her? And wherever would she get meat to feed them with? Their social rank was such that they would be insulted if they were not served meat dishes. There was no place where we could buy meat. At the Laird's Castle, of course, they slaughtered for their own use almost every day. For ourselves, we found chickens the easiest to obtain. If it was skinny, we boiled it for stew and so on. But soon the meat was on the table. Ava had mixed a bit of bacon with this vegetable, a bit of leftover chicken with that one, and today's chicken in another form made a third dish. For culinary art, Ava deserved a medal. Of course, they ate at great leisure, and I, as their hostess, could not leave them. But you do not discuss business at mealtime. I saw my first hour go, and my second hour for preparation had to be invaded, because the scribe sat back and explained his errand. Next time we'll find out what the errand's all about. I'm praying for you. I love you. Bye-bye for now.